We're going to be in James chapter 5 this morning as we finish up the book of James. Uh, so James chapter 5, 13 to 20, if you've got a Bible, you want to get over there. Uh, when my son Sam was only four years old, one day we were sitting at the table, I think for breakfast, and my wife was making the weekly grocery list, so she's just writing down the things we need. And as she was writing down the grocery list, Samuel said, Mommy, could you write down snow on the grocery list? And uh, so she said, oh, you want me to buy you some snow when I go to the grocery store? And he said, no, 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 no. I want Jesus to look at your grocery list and send me some snow. So in fact, we did. We wrote it down on the grocery list. She went and she bought everything she needed. Uh, no joke, two days later in College Station, Texas, in late February, it snowed. And not like just a little bit. I mean, it's, it, it left kind of a, uh, some sleet and some snow on the ground. If you've lived here a while, you know how rare that is. So once again, we were sitting at the kitchen table and Samuel was there. We look outside. I go, Sam, it's snowing. And he just, he looks up, he throws his arms in the air and he goes, thank you, Jesus. It was a triumphant moment for him. And I've thought about that moment over the years for a few reasons. One reason is I've thought, uh, theologically, would God possibly send a snowstorm for the benefit of the budding faith of a four-year-old boy? And uh, I can't think why not. But I also think about that because, man, what an example of childlike faith, the kind of faith that Jesus talks about that approaches God and says, God, would you, would you meet my needs? Would you provide? Lord, here's something I long for that approaches God with this simple faith of expectation and hope that God will answer. And then when God did answer, he approaches God again with a heart of gratitude and joy and thanksgiving. What a childlike faith. And I love that story, and yet at the same time, uh, if you're like me, uh, a lot of us as we get older, we struggle to maintain that kind of a childlike faith, if we're honest. Because as we grow older, sometimes we pray, and God doesn't seem to give us what we want or think we need. Sometimes we pray, and it seems like he doesn't answer at all. Or maybe we just get really busy. We start to think, my life is full there are a thousand things I have to do, and prayer is going to take up a lot of my time, and I don't have time, especially if I don't know if it really matters. And so it's hard to maintain that faith in the power of prayer as we approach God. And yet, when I read the Bible, and especially the New Testament, I can't get around the reality of how the first followers of Jesus talked about prayer. Because all throughout the New Testament, they're exhorting us to pray all the time for everything. And then in the books like the Gospels and the book of Acts, the early church uh, is praying about everything all the time, as if they actually believe that God is listening to them and will answer their prayers. And the early church uh, is only following the example of Jesus himself, the Son of God, who prayed all the time about everything, who went off and prayed by himself for hours and hours and hours as he approached his Father. And sometimes I think, man, if there's anybody in the universe who doesn't need to pray, it would be God in the flesh, the Son of God. And yet Jesus prayed more than anybody. And so his disciples developed this pattern of prayer. 
And then they exhort us to pray. And so as I read the scripture, there's a clear, clear indication that prayer really does matter, that we are called to pray because we worship a God who not only made the universe, but he intervenes in the world. He is still active in the universe. This is one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from certainly many other religions, but also those who wouldn't believe in God at all, of course, is that we don't only believe in a God who made the universe and then stepped back and just sort of lets it run like a clock. We actually believe in a God who does stuff in the universe, who has a relationship with his people, who engages with his people, who listens to his people and responds to our needs. We believe in a God who intervenes in the world. And in a few weeks, we will celebrate Resurrection Sunday, the greatest evidence, the greatest validation that we worship a God who intervenes in the world because he sent his only son into the world to live in time and space among us, to die for us, and to rise again so that we can know him and be with him. So we don't worship a God who stands far off and doesn't get involved. We worship a God who does get involved in our lives. And so because of that, almost every single book of the the New Testament tells us to pray, to pray, to pray. And if you remember, the book of James was written to scattered Jewish Christians who are scattered around the Roman Empire. And he begins by saying, hey, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, all kinds of suffering. And as we've walked through the book, we've seen they're, they're facing all kinds of problems, financial problems, religious problems, relational problems, all of these problems. And he says, I want you to endure well, but I also want you to pray. I want you to ask God for wisdom. Remember that from chapter one, right out of the gate. He says, when you're facing trials, you got problems with your job, you got problems with your marriage, you got problems with your kids, problems with your money, problems with your health, whatever. When you're facing trials of various kinds, I want you to pray to God and ask him for wisdom. And in James four that we just talked about last week, James warns us, he says, don't try to manipulate or control your life. Recognize that you're not God. You can plan, yes, but you don't control the future. You can save, yes, but once you begin hoarding, believing you can manipulate and control the future, now you're taking the place of God. And here, as we get to the end of the book, he kind of ends where he began. He says, two people who are facing struggles and trials and difficulties, he says, if there's one thing you do, And remember, the thing that a preacher says first and last, that's what they really want you to remember. James says, if there's one thing I want you to remember, it is that you ought to be praying in every circumstance, every situation, even when you're facing trials, and yes, when you're happy, when you're sick, when you're struggling with sin, pray, 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 pray. He's going to end our book by saying this, prayer is the right response to every situation. Prayer is the right response to every situation situation, even if we don't understand how God will answer, even if we don't understand God's timing, especially if we're busy, and especially if we struggle. He says prayer is the right response to every situation. And so the question for us this morning, those of us who are, are, are grown-ups, and maybe we struggle with that simple faith, the real question is, do we pray? I think a lot of times we say, I don't know if, if prayer works. I don't know if prayer works, but the reality is we, maybe we don't actually pray all that much. 
right? And so I'm not going to give us some sort of uh, benchmark for the number of minutes a day you ought to be praying. What I am going to say is this, that the scripture is going to say in every situation, constantly, all the time, be praying and offering your, your requests and your praises to the Lord. Pray in every situation. And the question is, do you pray? Do you have a time? Do you have a place throughout your day that you pray, that you get with the Lord and you offer up your praise and your thanksgiving and your requests and your confession? Do you pray? Because James says, for the believer in Jesus Christ, prayer is the right response to every situation because we believe in a God who hears us. So watch how James makes his argument. James chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 13. He says, if is anyone among you suffering, then he must pray. So he begins here. He says, first of all, I want you to pray when you're suffering. Um, the, the, the Greek word here for suffering, it's an interesting one because it's actually kind of a compound word that includes two words, to, to hurt, to suffer, uh, or uh, excuse me, to feel, and also bad, right? So the idea is if you're suffering and you feel bad, something's going on in your life that's making you feel not good, could be something financial that he's talked about, could be a relational issue, he's talked about that, could be a religious, spiritual type of issue, he's talked about that. If there's something in your life that is causing you a problem, he says, I want you to pray. Is anyone among you suffering, then it says he must pray. Now, some of you may have versions that say, let him pray. I want to be clear. James is not saying uh, you have permission to pray. This is an imperative. It's a command. He is saying, then you must pray. If you're suffering, I'm telling you, prayer is the right response to your suffering. This is a command for those who know Jesus Christ. And remember again, he's saying, instead of manipulating, instead of hoarding, instead of, in verse 12, he says, instead of making oaths where you try to bind God according to your plans, he says, no, 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 no. You're suffering? You get on your knees and pray. And one of the things I think about when I read this passage is that James is not coming from a place where he doesn't understand what suffering is. So if somebody's like, hey, I'm sorry you're sad. Why don't you go pray about that? You might be like, why don't you be quiet, right? It really hurts, right? And James is like, no, no, no. James is not coming from that place. If anybody understood suffering, not only did Jesus understand it, but his first followers understood it. They lived in a world where People were hostile to the idea that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and the Son of God. People were skeptical and outright dismissive of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the apostles, they were imprisoned, they were martyred, including eventually James is what our tradition tells us. And so these, these men and women who followed Jesus in the first century, they understood trial. There's a really powerful story in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John, two of the first disciples, they're preaching the gospel, and as they're preaching the gospel, they get arrested for preaching the gospel. They get thrown into jail, and then they get let out of jail, and, and they go before the religious and governmental authorities of the day who say to them, hey, we're going to let you out of jail. You get to go home, but 
don't tell anybody else about Jesus. Stop preaching about Jesus. They threaten them. They warn them. Don't tell anybody about Jesus. So, th- so they leave, and of course, they ignore that uh, threat. They ignore that advice. They continue to talk about Jesus, but they also go, and they tell all their Christian friends about what happened. We were arrested for preaching the gospel. So they go, and they talk to all their friends, and here's, here's what happens. It says, when they heard this, when all their friends heard that they were arrested for the name of Jesus and commanded not to share about Jesus, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. So they all get together and they pray and they say, oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, you're in charge of everything, even those who believe they're opposing you. You made everything, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. This is Psalm 2, which by the way, ends with all of those kings face down before the Son of God. And they say, your Holy Spirit prophesied this kind of thing, that people would come against Jesus. Now watch what they pray next. They say, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your, holy, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. In other words, they say, hey, we're not going to take revenge. We're not going to fight back. God, we trust justice to you. But here's what we want you to do. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So notice what they pray for and notice what they don't pray for. Here they are facing persecution and they say, God, we recognize you're in control. We recognize you saw all of this coming, even all the way back into the Old Testament. They're like, you you predicted this would happen. So here's what we pray. God, we pray that justice will eventually be done, but we also pray, give us the boldness to keep preaching the gospel, even though they told us not to do it. Strengthen our hearts to be faithful to you. That's what they pray for in their suffering. God, change us, strengthen us. Now, what do they not pray for? I find this interesting. They don't pray that that they won't be arrested again. I find that kind of interesting. That would be the first thing I would probably pray for. God, I don't like handcuffs. Please don't let that happen. Now, other places in the scripture, of course, people pray that God would alleviate suffering, that God would heal, that God would step in. It's not wrong to pray for the alleviation of suffering, but sometimes people pray for God to do something totally different, that God may be calling us to suffer for the sake of the gospel in this instance. Now, in another place, Jesus himself actually prays for his suffering to be alleviated. Let me show you. Jesus goes a little beyond them. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face, and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. So God, if there's any way, Father, that you cannot let me die on a cross, I'd rather that you would let this cup pass. And he says, yet, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus approaches his father. Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, approaches the father and he says, Father, if there's any other way, find another way. But I trust you. And so the picture of how how Jesus encourages us to pray and how the early Christians prayed in the face of suffering, first of all, they, they pray constantly. They always pray. Every time something like this happens, you see them in prayer. 
Sometimes they ask for God to alleviate suffering. Sometimes they ask for God to change their own hearts. And yet they always, as we said last week, they come with an open heart and an open hand to say all of this happens within the scope of God's will. We can trust in God's will. I've seen in my own life, as I pray in the face of trials and difficulties and sufferings, sometimes God does answer and actually alleviate the challenge or alleviate the suffering. Sometimes he steps in in powerful ways to alleviate or help with whatever's going on. Let me just give you one story. When uh, Shannon and I were a young couple, I've shared with you all before, we had, we had some financial hardship especially while I was going through seminary. There were months that after week three of the month, we were out of money. We didn't have quite enough to buy groceries and all of that for the remainder of the month. And so there was a month that that happened to us, and uh, we were about $250 short of what we needed. And so we we just prayed. We were like, Lord, please provide what we need. We don't know how you're gonna provide. We don't know what this is gonna look like, but we just ask that you would provide what we need. And then the next day we went to church, Sunday morning, and we went to this little church in Richardson, Texas, and we were a part of this little Sunday school class, maybe 15, 20 people, a bunch of young couples our age. And there was this one guy in the class, I still remember his first name was Mark. I actually have no idea where this guy is today, but I remember that this was a man of prayer and a man of generosity. And we sat down in this little circle of chairs at the beginning of the class, and Mark walks across the circle, and he sits down next to me, and he kind of leans over, and he goes, hey, this is going to sound really weird, and I feel really, really sheepish about this. He goes, this is going to sound really weird, but I was, I was praying yesterday, and I just felt the Lord directing me that you guys could use this. And he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a check for $250, and I'm not making this up. I looked at it and I told him, I said, this is remarkable because yesterday I was telling the Lord that we could use $250. Now, that was a remarkable moment in my life, in our life as a young couple, but but here's what's interesting. That's pretty rare, at least in my life. That doesn't happen every day. And there are other things I've prayed for that I've prayed for for years, fervently, and I think faithfully that haven't happened like I wanted them to. And what I've seen in those moments is I don't understand why God might answer one prayer and not another prayer. Some of those are in the mystery of the sovereignty of God. But what I will tell you, what I've seen is over the years, there are things that I've prayed for that that haven't happened like I wanted them to happen. But in the process of trusting God and praying, I've found that something happens inside of me. My patience in him deepens. My patience toward other people deepens. My trust in him deepens. My character grows. So often what I've seen is God may move to operate in the circumstances outside of me, but God may also say, in this instance, I want to move inside of you to transform you and not what's going on around you. And then the deal is, I don't know which situation is which, nor did the apostles. And we see times that they pray and it doesn't happen like they hoped. We'll see one in a few minutes. We see other times when they pray and God intervenes remarkably and even miraculously. And we don't know always why one and not the other. But notice they always come with expectation, with hope, believing that God does answer prayer. God does intervene. And whatever is going on, God wants to do something maybe in the world around me, maybe in me. 
So James says, if you're suffering, you're feeling bad, come before God and pray. But then he goes on and not, he says, not only when you're, when you're suffering, he says, is anyone cheerful? Then he is to sing praises. So he says, pray in times of suffering, but I also want you to pray in times of joy, in times of happiness, in times of cheerfulness. If your spirit is filled with happiness, he says, I want you to pray to sing praises more specifically, which is really, it's a form of prayer. So he says, when you're, when you're hurting, when you're sad, when you feel bad, I want you to pray. When you feel really good, I want you to pray. I wonder how many of us begin to sing praises and talk to God or sing to God or both when we're happy. I don't know about you and kind of when it is that you feel the happiest in your life. Uh, maybe there's a time of day or a, a time of week. Maybe you're like Friday afternoon when school is over. Whatever it is, maybe there's a time you feel the most cheerful. For me, uh, and this may sound strange to some of you, quite often in the day, the time I feel the happiest, the most cheerful is first thing in the morning when I wake up. I am a bit of a morning person, but you know, uh, when I wake up in the morning, especially the older I get, I feel really good. Like I wake up and I'm like, I woke up, right? Yay, that's a really good thing. And so I feel really, really happy about that. And then I'm like, everything seems to work, right? Everything's a little slower than maybe it was 10 years ago. It works a little bit less good than it may have worked previously, but everything still works, right? I feel good. I'm awake. I'm alive. Everything's good. And nobody yet at this point in the morning has approached me with any complaints, any problems to solve, anything like that. So I have a day stretching ahead of me that is a blank slate of possible beauty and happiness. And so I feel cheerful. And so what I do is when I'm getting ready in the morning, as I'm taking my shower and as I'm, as I'm getting dressed, I have a little speaker that sits next to the sink in our bathroom and I connect it to my phone. And that's when I pr- play praise music on that speaker and I sing praises to God. James says, this is what I'm calling you to do. In suffering, pray. In cheerfulness, sing praises to God, because it's really easy to forget to praise God when we feel happy, when we feel joyful. And we're not the only ones. Throughout the scripture, people often take God for granted when things are going well, and then they complain when things are going poorly. People tend to be, us included, complainers more than praisers. Go back to the nation of Israel, and then even in the New Testament. There are all these exhortations. Don't complain. Don't grumble. Don't argue. Stop complaining all the time. It's because people are prone to complain. And and, and the exhortation is instead of grumbling, praise God. We forget to do that when we're cheerful. There's a great, powerful story in Luke 17 that some of you will remember where 10 lepers come to Jesus and they, they're seeking healing. And in the first century, of course, if you had leprosy, uh, that was a terrible, terrible disease. Still is a terrible disease. But you were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. You were socially and religiously unclean. You could not be around other people. You couldn't participate in society. You couldn't worship near the temple. You had to just remain isolated with other lepers. So that's why there's 10 of them, by the way, together. They all come probably from a leper colony. And they come to Jesus and they ask for healing. Jesus heals all 10 of them. And then they turn around and they walk away. And you remember the story, one guy turns around and comes back and he falls on his face before Jesus and begins to thank him and praise him. And and Jesus says, where'd the other nine go? And I often think about that story because I, I just wonder, would I be one of the other nine? Because all too often I am. When I think of all God has blessed me with in life, 
the times God has cared for me, for my family, has paved the way of life before me, and the fact that Jesus Christ himself gave his life for me. How often do I praise him? How often do I thank him? I realize some of you, you say, I don't, I don't sing. Not even God in heaven wants to hear my voice. But God, he's not, he's not starting a band. It's not an audition. He wants to hear us praise him for the same reason, if you're a parent, that it makes you joyful when one of your kids comes just to tell you something happy or just to thank you for something good without always a request or a complaint. Some of you parents are like, I dream of that moment. Because you love to see your kids happy and you love to see them rejoice and you long to help them get there. And so James says, I want you to sing praises because we worship a God, no matter how well you carry a tune, that loves to see his people rejoicing in the goodness of their relationship with him. So he says, pray in times of suffering, pray in times of joy. And then thirdly, he's going to go on and say, I want you to pray in times of sickness. I want you to pray in times of sickness. So we're going to read what is a very interesting passage. Uh, A lot of challenging questions in this passage. But uh, James says this, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. So the, the image is somebody is sick, seemingly physically sick to the point that they can't get up. They can't get out of bed. That's the idea of like praying over the person. The idea is the elders in this case are probably standing over this person's bed and praying. So to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. All right, so, so here's, here's what James says. He says, if you're sick, then you can, you can do this. You can say, I'm going to call for the elders of the church. Who are the elders of the church? I, I looked at a Greek lexicon this week to uh, look at what does this word elder mean. And the first definition is that an elder is somebody who is relatively old. Uh, so is James saying, hey, just you know, come to church Find the nearest old people and have them come to your house and pray for you. Not exactly, but there is a reason. I mean, that's not a bad idea. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. But I am saying there is a reason uh, that, he, that, that, that these men are called elders. Elders are men who govern the church, who shepherd the church, who lead for the, the church. They pray for the church. We have elders here at Grace. And they help us stay on track, on mission, on vision. But a large part of what they do is they also shepherd the flock and they pray for the flock and they care for the flock. The reason that they are called elders is, by the way, they are meant to be at least somewhat not young, right? So here at Grace, you've got to be 40 plus in order to be an elder. It's kind of an arbitrary uh, designation, but, but over the years, our church kind of said, we want somebody in this stage of life or further. Right? So these elders are these men that one of their major responsibilities is they care for, they pray for, they shepherd the flock. And so James says, if you're sick, call those men as representatives of your church and they can come over and they will pray over you. And he says, they can anoint you with oil. So there's another question. What is that talking about? Why, why do they anoint with oil? Well, it's not that the oil is magical or does anything special in and of itself. There are people who sell like 
oil from the Holy Land or oil supposedly from an olive tree that Jesus was near or something like that with the idea that the oil itself is somehow magical or has some mystical properties. That's not what James is getting at. The oil is actually a symbol, much like baptism is a symbol, but a different kind of symbol. The oil is a symbol of the presence and the power of God to do a special thing in this person's life. So you think about in the Old Testament, priests were anointed with oil when they were ordained as priests to serve in the temple, to say this person is set apart to do the work of God. Kings were anointed with oil when they were crowned and chosen as king, to say God has set this person apart to do something special. Jesus and the disciples, as they healed people, they anointed them with oil. You see this in Mark 6. And the idea of that anointing is this is a symbol that we are praying for God's spirit to move in this person's life in a powerful way. So it says the elders can come, they can pray, anoint them with oil, and then it says, and then the prayer offered in faith will heal the one who is sick, and God will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So uh, this is a tricky one, right? Because you read it, and on the surface, you're like, this looks like a guarantee, doesn't it? It looks like Elders come over, they anoint you with oil, they do this thing, they pray in the name of the Lord, and you will be healed. But, but that, that poses a problem for us, because there are times in the scripture when people pray for healing, and God doesn't heal. In fact, it happened to the Apostle Paul. If you remember, the Apostle Paul talks about this thorn in his flesh, which clearly seems to be some kind of physical ailment. We don't know what it was, but he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness." Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So so Paul says, uh, God in this instance chose not to heal me physically, but instead to strengthen me spiritually, to give me the grace that I need to endure this well. So if God doesn't always heal, and in fact, by the way, I should say, our elders still do this. They, they will go and they, they pray for the sick and they anoint them with oil and they pray in the name of the Lord. Sometimes people have been healed, but most of the time not. And so the question is, is this this not true? Well, some people say, maybe this was only true in the first century, right? God doesn't do this anymore. But James doesn't say that. He doesn't say, by the way, after 100 AD, can you go ahead and just burn this page, right? He doesn't suggest that. Other people say, well, it's the prayer offered in faith, right? So if it's the prayer offered in faith, and so if you weren't healed, that means you didn't have enough faith. You didn't believe hard enough. You didn't, you didn't try hard enough for healing. Uh, I just want to say that, uh, again, nowhere in Scripture does it say that the power of God is conditioned upon the, 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 the amount or intensity of my faith, right? And if Paul, the apostle, prayed for healing and didn't get it because he didn't have enough faith, man, I'm in big trouble. And I know men and women who have much, much deeper faith than I who have prayed longer and more fervently for their own healing or somebody else and haven't seen it happen physically. Right, so I don't think it's that you've gotta have a lot of faith and that's the key. Instead, I think what James is is doing here is is he is, 
He is operating all of this under the assumption that prayer is subject and healing is subject to the sovereignty of God. So notice he says that they're supposed to pray in the name of the Lord. This is similar to what Jesus says when he says, anything you ask for in my name, I will give you. That isn't, again, it's not saying there's a magical word where you just say Jesus and you get whatever you want. The idea is it has to be prayed consistently with the sovereign will of God. And we don't always know what that is. That's why, remember, just in the previous section, James had been saying, look, don't make plans without asking for God's will to be done. You should say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Notice that. If the Lord wills, we will live. Your very survival hinges upon the mysterious and powerful will of God that we don't always know. Just in the previous verse to this, again, remember he said, don't make oaths before God. Don't come and go, God is going to do this thing because we did A, B, and C. I swear it, I promise it on heaven and earth and on God's name, I promise because he goes, you're binding God to your plans. Don't do that. Instead, you come humbly before God and you pray. And when you pray, he says, because we believe in a God who intervenes, yes, God answers prayer and God will raise people up. And when God does that, you can be confident that's an answer to prayer. But I don't believe James here is saying God must always do that. It's not a guarantee. It's a principle that God operates often by listening and responding to the prayers of his people. So he might heal me now. He might heal me later. He might not heal me until the resurrection. But James says, I want you to come in hope and in expectation. Sometimes he heals. Sometimes he doesn't. Notice also there's a connection here to sin. That's an interesting thing. Because throughout the scripture, sometimes people are sick and sometimes people die because of their sin. You see it in 1 Corinthians 11, that there were believers who were abusing and blaspheming the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, some of y'all are sick and you're even dying, you're falling asleep because of your sin. So you need to repent, you need to confess. That's part of what James is getting at here. But then there's other times where sin doesn't directly come into play. You might not have done anything wrong to be sick or to have a physical problem or ailment. Think about John 9. Some of you remember John 9. One day Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they saw a blind man by the side of the road. And the disciples look and they go, hey, uh, Jesus, who sinned? That guy or his parents that he would be born blind. You see the, the, the assumption here. He's blind, he must have done something wrong, or his parents or somebody in his generational past must have done something wrong that transmitted this curse into this man's life and now he's blind. That was their assumption. And Jesus says, neither. But this was so that the power and the glory of God might be displayed in him and then Jesus goes over and heals him. In other words, this man was actually born blind for this moment where the Son of God could display his power in his life and heal him. He didn't do anything wrong. And again, the the issue is we don't always know which it is. And so James says, as we gather to pray, if you're asking for prayer for healing, it is appropriate to search your heart. Is there sin that needs to be confessed? But also recognize we all operate under the, the mystery of God's will that we don't always perfectly know or understand. When Jesus healed the paralytic in Mark chapter two, you remember that story, Um, there's this paralyzed man and Jesus says to him, uh, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody gets very upset at that because 
you can't go around forgiving people's sins unless you claim some sort of authority to be God, right? So they start to grumble. Only God can do that. And Jesus goes, okay, look, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because nobody can actually validate uh, externally whether that happened. But he goes, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He looks at the guy, he goes, I tell you, get up, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. The guy stands up and walks away. Everybody is astounded, but they're more upset that Jesus went around forgiving sins. But Jesus' point is this, that the healing we really need, the healing we really long for, even if we don't recognize it, is the healing that comes from the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That what we need the most is a spiritual healing. And then the day is coming because Jesus rose. We sang about it earlier. Because Jesus rose, those who know Jesus will one day rise again, fully restored physically, spiritually, emotionally. So James says, I want you to pray in expectation, but not in presumption. Some of you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is. She's a Christian author and speaker, a very powerful writer and speaker. She was paralyzed as a young woman in a diving accident. She was very athletic, uh, diving, swimming, horse riding, all of these things. She was, she was paralyzed as a young woman, and uh, she uh, then went on to have this speaking and writing ministry and a ministry to those who are disabled. Uh, In an article that she wrote after 35 years of being in a wheelchair, uh, she says this, does God miraculously heal? Sure, he does. But in this broken world, it's still the exception, not the rule. A no answer to my request for a miraculous physical healing has meant purged sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, and a hunger for his word. Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. You see what she says? That God has declined to answer the physical request. But look at what he's done in me. And and I say that in her words because I I don't want to minimize or make light of those even in this room who have real sicknesses and physical struggles. But James in the scripture, it says we approach God for prayer and we believe God can and does act. But all of this is under his sovereignty and his will. But James says I want you to keep praying. Even when you don't get what you want, right now in the way you want. You keep praying that we believe in a God who is alive and who intervenes. So he says, pray in times of suffering, pray in times of joy, pray in times of sickness. And then lastly, he says, I want you to trust that prayer actually does work. Maybe one of the most well-known passages in all of James is the end of verse 16. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That prayer can be effective And then he gives an illustration. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James says, I want you to understand that when you pray, when you're, when you're suffering, when you're, when you're happy, when you're sick, God moves, God acts. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. 
And then he gives us this illustration. You remember Elijah. You remember Elijah in the Old Testament, this prophet who prophesied uh, during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel in the northern kingdom of Israel. They were very, very wicked. In fact, so much so that Jezebel is a name that's become synonymous with wickedness. (coughs) Excuse me. And so uh, God, in order to get the attention of the people and move them away from their idolatry, God shuts off the heavens. It stops raining to bring them to repentance. And so, so Ahab comes to Elijah, and Ahab's like, this is your fault. You're a troubler of Israel. Elijah goes, I didn't trouble Israel. You did with your idolatry and your belief in Baal, this, this fertility god who was also a god of storms and weather, your worship of these false gods, these immoral gods. He goes, you're the one that troubled Israel. And so Elijah says, let's do this. Let's have a showdown and see who we should worship. You remember the story, great story in 1 Kings 18. So they, they gather together and all the prophets of Baal go over here and then Elijah comes over here. And the idea is we're gonna light a, an offering. We're gonna, we're gonna make an offering to our respective gods. And we're gonna see which God actually receives the offering, which one's real. So the prophets of Baal, they, they, off, they put this offering together, right? And they begin to pray to Baal. They dance and, and they, they shout and they cut themselves. They have all these rituals, all these things they do to obligate Baal in order to act on their behalf. And so they're doing all of this for hours and hours and hours and nothing happens because Baal isn't a real God. So Elijah's standing over here and he starts to kind of make fun of them. I really resonate with Elijah's sense of humor because Elijah begins to go, hey, maybe you should shout louder. Maybe he doesn't hear you. Baal's kind of old. Maybe his hearing is bad, right? Or maybe, maybe you need to dance around a little bit more. Maybe you need to make more noise. Maybe he went on a trip. Maybe he had some business he had to do somewhere else and Baal's not here, right? And, and of course, the irony is a real God can be everywhere at once like the God of Israel. He even says, maybe he's gone aside or he's occupied. This is a euphemism in the Old Testament for maybe Baal is in the potty, Right, and so Elijah's over here, he's like, you're worshiping a God that can't do anything. And so they stop all of that, and then notice, Elijah comes over, he sets up his offering, he has them cover it with water, so much water that it's, 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 the trench around it is filled with water, the idea being only God could light that on fire at this point. And then watch what, what Elijah does. He doesn't dance around, he doesn't erect a totem pole, he doesn't cut himself, he just does this, he goes, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I love this. Hours of craziness for a God that does nothing. Elijah just looks up and goes, God, listen to me, hear me. And the offering is lit. James says that's how we pray, in faith and expectation that God can and does answer because the issue is not how creative or clever or loud we shout or all the stuff we do or how much we believe it. The issue is we worship a God who lives. And at the end of the chapter, In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. Elijah prayed, the rain came back. So James says, I want you to understand, that's the kind of God we serve. 
That's the kind of God we worship. And, and right at the end, when, when, he, when he exhorts us um, to approach those who are in sin, this is still um, coming out of the illustration of Elijah. Remember, Elijah is trying to call people to repentance, away from the idols of the world toward the God who lives. And so James says, I want you to understand, if you pray as a person like Elijah, and then you approach somebody to turn them from the error of their sin. God can work a miracle, not only in the external circumstances, but in people's hearts. And that may be one of the greatest miracles, is God turning people away from idolatry and sin and darkness. And he says, you can save their soul or their life from death. You can save them from the consequences of sin. Not because you're Jesus, but because you can lead them to Jesus as you pray and as you talk with those who are wandering away. Ezekiel calls us to do this. Ezekiel 33, he says, when I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you, that is speaking uh, on behalf of God, the prophets or his people, you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. In other words, you have an obligation to, to preach the truth to those who are in sin. But if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. All right, so James says, I want you to pray. I want you to pray for God to act when you're suffering, when you're cheerful, when you're sick, when someone's wandering into sin, and I want you to encourage them to turn back to Jesus, but you can trust God's will and God's timing and God's sovereignty. But James says prayer is the right response to every situation, every situation, no matter how you're feeling, no matter what's going on. And again, I want to come back to what I asked at the beginning. Do we pray? Some of you in here this morning, you're thinking, I need prayer. I need, I need y'all to pray for me. I want to encourage you. We want to pray for you and with you, and we do. So one of the reasons we have those cards every week in the uh, backs of the seats in front of you is you can write your prayer requests down. You can drop them every week in the, off, in the offering basket as it goes by, or there's boxes on the walls. We actually grab those, and we, uh, we write them out each week, and our staff prays for them every week. Our elders pray with us. We, we pray for those requests. Even if you write it down anonymously, we spend intentional time on a weekly basis praying for you. We want to pray for you. If you're sick or someone you know is sick and you would like the elders to come to your home and pray for you and anoint you with oil, that is something that we also do. You can contact me at the church or Dusty or one of the pastors and we can connect you. If you're saying, I, I want to be prayed for by, by this congregation, we do that. But I also wanna ask as we close, do you have a rhythm of prayer in your life? Do you have a place? Do you have a time? Do you have some kind of strategy? As I said, I'm not gonna give you like you need to be praying 42 minutes a day in order to really be a good prayer warrior. Uh, as we grow, often we pray more and more. I know in my life over the years, I've had to be creative in different stages of life to think how and when can I pray. So quite often for me right now, I might wake up and pray early, early in the morning in my bed before anybody else is awake. Or I go into my closet or I walk out onto the back porch. For me, it helps me to pray aloud, if possible, if I can do so without waking up others. But to pray aloud, because when I verbalize my prayers, it really does, for me, help cement them in my heart 
in my mind. Sometimes I think uh, they, they can feel just insubstantial and poorly organized if I just keep them in my brain, even though God can hear me either way. All right, do you have a time? For, for some, it may be you say, I want to pray in multiple times throughout the day. Sometimes I'll come in here in this room during the week, during the day, and I'll walk through the room and I pray for our church, for, for our people, for myself, for my family. Do you have a time? Do you have a place? Do you have a strategy? James says prayer is the right response to every situation. So the question is, do we pray and believe that we worship a God who made the universe and who intervenes in it and who hears our prayers and who loves us deeply and has demonstrated that in Jesus Christ? Prayer is the right response for every situation. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word. Our prayer this morning is that we would become people of faith and people of prayer, but also people who trust you in deeper ways, who know your faithfulness in deeper ways, and who submit all of our desires and our will and our needs and our joys to you. God, make us faithful. I pray if there are any in this room this morning who don't know you through Jesus Christ, that the message would clearly sink in that you demonstrated your love for us and your desire to know us by sending Jesus to die in our place and to rise from the dead. I pray somebody in this room who doesn't know you this morning would come to understand that for the first time. Father, for those of us who know you, we pray we would be faithful to present our requests before you in every situation, happy or sad, sick or healthy, whether we feel close to you or far away. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.